Hello and welcome to Frisbee's Bulls and Bears with me, Dominic Frisbee. Now, I am slowly, over the course of the next few months, going to rebrand Frisbee's Bulls and Bears and make it less investment focused and more kind of broadly focused on on things that are currently interesting me. And so I'm going to call the show Stuff That Interests Me. But this rebranding process, like everything that I do, is going to take some time. But here, now to follow, is the first ever Stuff That Interests Me podcast. Today I'm sitting with a man who I have literally met five minutes ago. He knocked on my door, he came in, I gave him a cup of tea, and now we are sitting down to interview. We have never spoken before. Uh, That man is Paul Kings North. He's the author of six books. He lives in rural Ireland, and rural Ireland, I should say, and he was passing through London, and I said to Paul, if you're ever passing through London, drop me a line. And he dropped me a line two or three days ago and said, I'm passing through London, and hence we have this interview. Now, I say I've met Paul 10 minutes ago, but I've known about him and he's known about me for a long time. We've both published books a long time ago with Unbound and Paul's book, The Wake, uh, which was about underground resistance in England shortly after the Norman Conquest, was long listed for the Booker Prize. And it was as, as a result of reading an article that Paul had written in The Guardian. Um, about land ownership since the days of the Norman Conquest, land ownership in the UK. That's when I kind of became very interested in, in, in meeting Paul when I started emailing him. Now, as those of you that know me, I've kind of, I started out my life quite left wing in my 20s as a student in my 20s and then um, I started reading about money and taxes and I became very disillusioned with the way that the, the, the West is run with our authorities and I became more and more libertarian and some people call that right wing um, but anyway I've become very almost an anarchist if you like in that I believe in as little government as possible but I've arrived at those conclusions through a very um financial route, a financial and economic route. Now, Paul, the man sitting opposite me, I suspect has arrived at similar anarchic conclusions. He is similarly disillusioned with with our authorities. However, he has arrived at uh, he has arrived at the same destination, but through a rather different left wing environmentalist journey. I think it's fair to say that. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think it is fair to say. Um if we're talking about small states and, and local power and uh, devolved democracy and all these kind of things, um, I mean, th- these are things actually that have been at the heart of radical green thinking for the last 40 years, actually. And that's that's kind of where, where I've come at them from. And I suppose listening to you talking about your journey is quite interesting because when I was a student, I was similarly... I suppose part of the sort of liberal left, you know, you tend to you tend to be quite supportive of big state initiatives and, and welfare and... and um, government help and in my case someone who is an environmentalist or campaigner um you tend to look to governments as the as the um as the solution to many of the problems if you've got to deal with climate change you know you say that that's a problem that only governments can deal with but but the more you look into it the more you come to a conclusion um which was summed up brilliantly by leopold core about 40 years ago a classic green thinker who wrote a book called um the breakdown of nations which if you haven't read it it sounds like you probably enjoy it um, and he said, wherever something is wrong, something is too big. Um, and nice. It's, it's, it's very good. I mean, he, he, he is actually trying to make a case for, for small nations. And what he does is he takes a whistle-stop tour through history. And he says, most of the cultural, the great cultural achievements of human history have actually come from very small nations or even tribal peoples. Um, and as soon as big empires and enormous governments start to spread out across the land, um, culture and economics and democracy and governance people being able to govern themselves all suffer i i i rabbited on about in my book life after the state mm. about just this thing and the the ideal example is the italian city-states mm. one of the greatest con- contributors to and the greek the ancient greek city-states as well one of the greatest contributors to mankind invention art all these kind of things yeah i mean uh, you know the, the classic green text is is small is beautiful by ef schumacher which, mm-hmm. which is an economics text but it's also a political text and it's the same thing it's the same notion um, there's all sorts of interesting psychological studies that have been done on the fact that humans operate best within uh, as uh, self-organising groups of below 100 people 
Um, it's pretty clear that once democracy gets beyond a certain stage, it's not really a democracy. It's what we have in this country, which is an elected oligarchy, yeah. where once every five years you can vote for one of two groups of corporate stooges who will then run the global economy for you. Um, yeah. So, small, so small I'm small guessing then that I'm not sure if you did vote, but would you have voted Brexit? I did. Yeah, I voted. I voted to leave the EU, which has got me some heat from other environmentalists. But I mean, I've I've written a fair bit about this since since that happened because I didn't say anything in the run-up to the election. I didn't really want to get involved in all the fighting. I didn't write anything about it. Um, I just voted to leave because I, I think small is beautiful and I think people should have sovereignty. And much as I like feeling European and I like cooperation with other nations, I don't like being run by a super state that love, I didn't vote love for. Love Europe, hate the EU. Well, it's, it, it, yeah, they're not the same thing, much as some people would like to tell us otherwise. And so I, I did vote to leave. Um, uh, you know, if if I look at the world, it looks to me like if you're looking at the environmental crisis, which is also a crisis of democracy and society, I think you've got uh, hugely top heavy states and you've also got hugely top heavy corporations and financial institutions, actually. And they've all got far too much power. They're all effectively serving each other's interests. The state now really just seems to effectively act as a as a, as a service industry for whatever the corporate economy wants to do. And the lack of power that people feel uh, and their kind of deracination from that, that giant machine, I think is one of the reasons we're currently getting this kind of explosion of populism around the world because people just feel completely, absolutely ignored and cut off. And People where, call, where it, they take people call thing, it a failure it? of capitalism. Mm. I call it what, exactly what you described, crony capitalism. Yeah, I mean, it is really. It's, a, it's also a failure of democracy. I mean, it's a failure of states. Um, you don't... What's interesting at the moment with what's happened with Trump uh, and what's happening in, in Europe with Marine Le Pen today, there's a French election yeah. going on, but also what's happened with the election of, say, Jeremy Corbyn as leader of Labour and Bernie Sanders over there. So it's happening on the and right and the left. On Italy yeah, and, and, and crosses the spectrum. You've got all of these candidates coming along who are, who are saying now we're speaking for the people against the elites. Whether they are or not is another matter, but the fact that they can get so much traction saying that is because a lot of people feel like they're entirely ignored clearly, by political and economic elites, which largely they have been. Because we're just coming out of a 20-year period in which politics was all effectively managerial neoliberalism, where the mm -hmm. right and the left had become more or less the same thing. Everyone had become very Blairite and Clintonite in the middle of the road, and they'd all made their peace with, with crony capitalism, as you called it, and said, this is the only game in town. There was no choice politically, and, and at the moment that's all breaking down again and getting quite interesting and slightly disturbing as well. And yes, but thank goodness it's breaking down. Well, it needs to break down, yeah, and a lot of people who were invested in the previous 20 years of of, um, of arrangements, I suppose, are getting very anxious about it. But it was going to happen. It was always going to hit the wall because it was it was fundamentally unsustainable, I think. Listening to you talk, I've got about a million things I want to ask you to talk about. I'm having to hold myself back and remember I'm an interviewer and, and to let you speak. But here's the, here's the first question I wonder. Why is... If, going back to what you said about small is beautiful mm. and that being the kind of ethos of things green. And it's, there's much less waste. And let's face it, waste is one of the biggest problems as far as environmental destruction is concerned. It's just the sheer waste. Um, it's better in a small environment. Why is the Green Party, why does it tend to be so authoritarian and the government has the answers and regulatory? Well, why isn't it much more laissez-faire? That is a very interesting question. And I think when the Green Party started out 40 years ago, it was much more cross-political almost. I mean, there were people from all political trends in the Green Party. There were people from the left, there were people from the, from the conservative right, there were anarchists, there were all sorts of people in there. Today, the Green Party is largely a very middle-class, liberal-left party. I mean, I think a lot of this comes down to class, actually. I mean, the, 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 the sort of class politics of the middle class left, as you see it in Labour and as you see it in the Liberal Democrats and as you see it in the Greens, it's very much um, it's very much social democracy. It's very much the notion that the state will, we must have a state that work for, for us and we, a state that we can control. So even though in theory, the Green Party is committed to localisation, in reality, they're not terribly interested in actually breaking down power systems and, and, and taking things down to a, low le a lower level. I mean, it might also be just, you know, politics. It might also be impossible to push a political line that, 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 that's radical enough in that sense. But, but I get the sense that the Greens have been hijacked by a sort of globalist middle class for whom actually small might be beautiful in theory, but big is best in practice. And, and so that's, 
that's kind of where you find yourself. And you know, the, the thing about one of the one of the major issues for me in terms of the environmental crisis is that because all the systems that we live under are so big, we don't see the consequences of our actions. So we can go to the shops and we can buy some meat or some eggs or a T-shirt or anything at all. We've got no idea where it came from or how it was produced, what conditions it was produced in. Then we chuck the rubbish away. We've got no idea how it goes. We, you know, we flush the toilet. We've got no idea where that goes. So we're, we're literally just consumers now. We don't yeah. have any. Once the once the bins leave my doorstep, yeah. I have no idea what happens. Well, you next. don't. Well, you wouldn't do, and you'd have to actually work very hard to find out where the stuff comes from. So that means we don't have a sense of responsibility. And again, the, the smaller things are, the more you produce for yourself, the, the the easier it is to kind of take responsibility in that way. But it's very hard to know what to do about that, given that we're living in this enormous interlinked system now mm. that it's, it's difficult to escape from. There is this kind of authoritarian attitude, and it happens in the Green Party, it happens in the Labour Party, it happens in the Conservative Party now. You know, Theresa May is incredibly authoritarian. Mm. And there is this idea that we know better than you do. Mm. It's a kind of arrogance. We know we're taxing you a lot because we know how to spend your money better than you do. We're regulating a lot, a lot because we know how to how to behave better than you do, and so on. So, uh, what you describe as a kind of middle class thing, I describe as a kind of arrogant, as a kind of arrogance, not necessarily a class, mm. but just a kind of educated arrogance. Yeah, well, I think we can talk about Leopold Kor again, actually, okay. because this is very interesting. Because in, in the breakdown of nations, one of the cases he makes. And it's a case that's been made by all sorts of other people from Schumacher to G.K. Chesterton to all sorts of others is that the major reason to limit power in any any agglomeration of power, whether it's economic or political, is that as soon as there's a, a huge unit of power, somebody will take it over and abuse it and start using it for their own ends. So if the amount of power that any personal group of people can have is limited, then there's only so much abuse of power that people can have. And it's also possible to um, to make it accountable. So if you're talking about um, an institution like the British government, which is governing 60 million people, um, there's, it's almost impossible to make them accountable for what they do. You can't, you can't really reach them, which is even more the case, of course, in the case of the European Union, which is why I don't mm -hmm. to leave it. It's impossible, really, to influence them. Whereas if, you have, if, you're, if you're living in a town and the town is governed by local politicians, you have a... You have a means of influencing them just because sure. there are fewer of you, and they're there down the road, and you might know them. You and, can pass you know, them on the way to the more, tube in the morning. Yeah, and you can, you know, you can influence what they do, and to some extent, that's true of an MP as well, perhaps. But it's certainly not true of a government that's that big, and so they can have that level of authoritarian power and influence because there's nothing you can do except wait five years and maybe vote against them in an election, depending on what seat you're in. So again, that you know, the, the smaller power, uh, the, the the closer to the ground power becomes, and the smaller the units of power are, in my view economic or political, the easier it is for people to get control over them and to have a say in how their actual lives are run. Um, it, a lot of it comes down to scale, I think. Um, why, if, okay, let's, if you reach behind you, Paul, on mm. there, you'll see a blue map of England there, on that picture there. Grab that picture, no, up, 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 that one there, uh -huh. pick that and take it down. Okay. And let's have a look at it. Right, now what you see here, I'm going to hold it up here, and I'll hold it, I've had it. this is a map of England, uh, and it's called, it's a picture I drew once upon a time, Fixing Britain by Breaking Up Britain, a template. And I've kind of divided Britain into something like the old Anglo-Saxon heptarchy. Mm. So we've got Cornwall here, Wessex, London and the home counties, Anglia, Mercia. I've put that area, Scousers and football players. <laughs> and we've got Wales broken up. We've got Ireland broken up into the Four Kingdoms. Scotland broken up into Pitland, Inverness, and so on. Um, that would make... Um, imagine it... Are you in favour of a kind of... The idea of, of, you know, no longer Great Britain or the United Kingdom of, of, of Britain and Ireland, but, but, you know, small individual city-states yeah, well, within would, Britain. It would be terrific, isn't it, as long as they were emerging rather than being imposed yes. from above. I mean, that would be the difference. Of course, the EU has already broken up England into eight chunky regions, which bear no resemblance to 
kind of history or place which a lot of people are unhappy about. Or the about. Pennines, for example, which, yeah. which divide England quite naturally. Yeah, but I mean, it would, these kind of things sort of naturally emerge anyway, don't they? I mean, this is, you know, this is why I, I also think, having voted to leave the EU, that it would be good to break up the UK. I mean, start with England, Scotland and Wales and Northern yeah. Ireland and see how much further down it goes. The, you know, the Cornish, some people in Cornwall would like their own. Yeah. Like their own nation, which would be great. I mean, yeah. Cornwall is the most overlooked mm. part of the UK consistently through history. Cornwall. It is yeah. so overlooked. Mm. Well, it's, you know, this is, this I think is, if you look, if you look back through human history, I think you see that for 99% of history, this is how people have actually governed themselves in very small ways, in, in regions and in, as you said, in city states and in villages and even nominally, say, throughout the Middle Ages when England families. was a centralised family. So, I mean, look, through the Middle Ages, England is nominally a centralised kingdom, but the king has very little power over most people's lives. I mean, they have to pay a tax. Occasionally they might get called up to the army. The local lord will have some power over the people, obviously, because especially under the feudal system. But the central government doesn't have much power over the day-to-day running of people's lives. That kind of power is held at village level. And however unjust medieval villages might have been, there's a decentralisation which was necessary because the technology wasn't available. This is another issue. The more technology becomes sophisticated, the easier it is to control huge amounts of people from quite a quite a mm. centralised quite a centralised place. Yes, technology is weird because on the one hand, things like YouTube and whatever Twitter or mm. you know they've given or Amazon they've given people great autonomy mm. suddenly i can publish my own book i can be my own broadcast channel you are watching my own broadcast channel now but at the same time um y- you know a little slice of of the the money that my channel makes or mm. or the profits that i make make their way to silicon valley yeah and you're being monitored all the time and i'm being monitored and and if and, uh, twitter decides that what i tweet is not appropriate it can delete it mm. and so on and so forth and you're constantly being harvested you know all of your activities being harvested and and turned into an algorithm so and google is our feudal overlord well it is actually yeah i mean the, the, the you know the incredible thing that they've managed to do google and facebook and all these other corporations is they've managed to get you to voluntarily give them all of your private information about what you like doing and your tastes and your politics just by posting it all up there. It's incredible. You know, I also But they've that... created a currency that mm. didn't previously exist. Mm. Like that that the value of that data mm. I mean on the one hand they're taking control of it, but mm. on the other hand they are creating a new value that didn't previously mm. exist. That that your yeah. habits were of no Exactly. But they are now. Um it's a... <laughs> Well, you know, well, I don't think they knew they were doing that when they started. Well, here's it's thing, one right, of these so things that kind of happened. Two classic dystopian novels of the 20th century, right? Okay. So you've got 1984 by George Orwell, mm-hmm. and then you've got Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. And Orwell's dystopia is a dystopia of force, right? So he has this notion that the future is a boot stamping on a human face forever. And it's very much inspired by Stalinism and, and by fascism, because he was writing at a time when these, dicta- these centralised dictators were marching across Europe and Asia and forcing everyone into a certain way of living. Huxley's is a is a more subtle dystopia, because in Huxley's dystopia, people don't know they're in a dystopia, and they're controlled by pleasure. So they're not, they, don't, they don't have the notion that a central government is the boot stamping on their face. They're not controlled by punishment. They're controlled by pleasure. They're given drugs. They're given television. They think they're free, but they're not free. And Huxley's has always been a much more convincing dystopia to me, because if you, you, know, if you know you're under a dictatorship, one day you're going to throw it off, because you know you're not free. On the other hand, if you think you are free and you're giving all your information to Facebook and getting lots of fun in exchange and you think actually you're living in a consumer paradise but in reality you're just a, a drone, you're fuel in the system, then then you have no incentive ever to get free because you don't know you're not. And that looks like a quite more, much more convincing um, notion of where we're going in terms of human freedom. The illusion of democracy, the, well, illusion, the illusion of freedom. freedom. The illusion that technology gives you freedom as well, because it can do. But as you say, look what happened to the internet, the way that the internet has been gradually controlled by governments over the past 10 or 15 years, something that originally was completely... Well, and controlled by doctrine mm. as well. This very kind of authoritarian, this is the moral right, this is the mm. moral wrong, mm. and if you breach the moral right, you are not allowed to post on Facebook uh, or we will censor you. You know, that it is, So it's not necessarily controlled by governments, but controlled by doctrine. Well, it's it's both, really, isn't it? I mean, the doctrine is the, the sort of the authoritarianism of society in in mm. terms of that um, that sort of uh, I suppose you might call it PC speech control is getting is getting more intense all the time in the West. But a lot of that's been been um, built up by people using social media because social media makes it really easy to form mobs. 
So, you know, it's very, very easy to find a victim, form a mob, descend upon them, you know, attack them until they apologise, and then kind of move on <laughs> like a swarm, which is happening a lot now. Oh, my God. A, the internet has given rise to the mob in a way. That, yeah. Well, it's, it's, all it's done is it's allowed people who used to form mobs on the streets to now form mobs online, because humans like forming mobs. We always have done. We like forming mobs. We like being righteous. We like attacking the enemy. And social media is just perfect for that. And it, it just one of the reasons I used to have a Twitter account and I don't have one anymore. And that one of the reasons is that it's impossible to say anything nuanced or thoughtful in 140 characters, and it's it, it's very easy to make enemies and it's very easy to argue. Yeah, and it's just it's actually antithetical to kind of thoughtfulness and thinking mm. and actual good human connection. It's the opposite. This is one of the dilemmas I face as somebody who is you know looking to get on in the media, and that is that. On the one hand, I think, it, well, if I say something that's too, like, my editor at Money Week once said this to me, and it always had great resonance with me, is that when you rant, all you do is confirm the biases of those who already agree with you, mm. whereas uh, you, you, you alienate the undecided. And so I've always made the target of my writings. I've been trying to, rather than confirm the biases of those who agree with me, I've always tried to persuade the undecided. Mm. So I've always tried to take a very measured approach. I've also thought that if I'm too outspoken or too bold in what I say, you know, I won't get work. It'll lose me bookings here and there and so on. So I've always taken this measured approach. And then I look at the, the world and, and it's the, the people who, you know, cr create a, st a storm in a china shop. What am mm. I, you know, the, the, the loud mouths the, from Owen Jones to Nigel Farage, you know, these kind of people who just go in all guns blazing. Mm. They're the ones who get the profile, not well, the measured intermediary. That's because that's how the media works, you see. So uh, instead of, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not interested in having a media profile. I'm a, I used to be when I was younger, but... But I'm you actually, are interested in selling lots of books and becoming a great intellectual well, I, thought leader. I don't leader. know about that. No, no, I don't want to be a thought leader. No, <laughs> no. I just want to find out what the truth is, and I want to explore it. Actually, and it's. I, I would. Yes, I would certainly like to sell books, but I'm, I have no interest in being a thought leader or famous in the media or any of that stuff. Because actually, precisely because, as you said, as, as soon as that happens to you, you become a caricature. Um, you get the most attention by being extreme. You get the most attention by taking a, a, a position against other people and by fighting and by... And that stuff is actually antithetical to finding out what's going on. I mean, you know, do you want to find out what the truth is and explore it? Or do you want to uh, have a career based on, as you say, being a loud-mouthed, divisive, char charismatic leader? Because they, they're not the same thing. I want to find out what the truth is, mm. but I also want acclaim, praise, mm. money, Oh, these well, that's, yes, all writers want that, don't they? Yes. <laughs> there is that. Yeah, there is that. But um, I think the media is just poisonous, actually. It's it's very... And the other thing that, that happens, and I've seen this happen to people um, a lot, is that you get yourself kind of backed into a corner. You know, you might start writing opinions for the media. You get noticed. Then you get a following. Your following wants you to confirm their opinions all the time. They want you to tell them what they want to hear. And you do that because that kind of makes you more famous and you sort of believe it. And then at some point you find you've got, you know, a million followers on Twitter, but they're all following you because they want you to keep saying the same thing forever. It's like going to a Bob Dylan concert and constantly wanting him to play the same songs, you know, and then you're backed into a corner. Then it's very hard for you to think your way out of that and say, well, I've kind of changed my mind on that. Actually, I, I think this now I've, I've evolved because then your followers start falling away and going off to somebody else. Mm. So it's you're a, inconsistent. Well, it's a trap. You know, if you want to be a great charismatic media figure, then you have to, have a, it's a brand. You have to brand yourself, don't you? Mm. And then keep doing the same thing forever, and it's terrible. No, I can't. Um, I, I have trouble with that. <laughs> I, w I want to go back to one thing we were talking about a moment ago, and then I want to investigate this question of what is the truth. I'm, mm. I'm interested in finding out. If what only is I knew the truth. that. Um, yeah, but I, I'm, I'm just working on something at the moment that involves um, the ancient Greeks and the mm. philosophy of the ancient Greeks, mm. and they were in pursuit of truth and beauty. Beauty is truth. Mm. Uh, the, well, it wasn't the ancient Greeks; it was Keats. But mm. but um, talking about ancient Greece, so if, so let's let's crack on with that. What, you, where where are you now in your in your research into the truth? How much of the sand have you pulled away to reveal the the the, the true sculpture within? Uh, well, um, I suppose where I am is uh, interrogating myself at the moment. Actually, that's what I find quite interesting because the, you, you, the more you, the more you explore the world and the more you interrogate the world, you realise that everything you see is seen through the filter of you. Um, you know, your your neighbour might look at exactly the same thing out of the window there and see something completely different, and that's all formed by your history, your psychology, your opinions, your prejudices. 
So if you don't know what you're bringing to the conversation, then you don't really know the difference between the truth that's out there and the truth that's in here. Um, and the human brain largely works on pattern recognition. So when we look out, we don't see what's out there. We see what the brain has filtered through to us based on what we've seen before, which means we all back up our own prejudices all the time. So I seem to spend quite a lot of time in my writing at the moment, especially in these essays, actually, just looking at how I as a person relate to this and why I might think about it in those ways, rather than imagining that I can come to some objective conclusion about what the world's like, because I'm not sure I can, which makes everything much trickier, of course. Because it would be nice to think that you could look out there and work out the truth and then write it down and have a manifesto and then everyone could follow it. But it doesn't really work like that. Because if it did, we'd have solved all the world's problems. Because the <laughs> world is full of manifestos written by intellectual thought leaders who think they've got a plan. But it doesn't really work. So, yeah. Well, my plan is that there is no plan. Mm, I, like, I, think I that, like that plan. That's a good plan. And that's, you know, that's the anarchist's plan mm. but it's also the free marketeer's plan mm. now the word free market has an evil oh it's thatcherite it's exploitative mm. well it is but it but it's it, it is also free and unplanned and it happens from the bottom up not from the top down um well i wonder you see i wonder if you can have a genuine free market in fact i'm sure you can't have a genuine free market when you have corporations and financial institutions that are as big as they are now because no, obviously, they're, obviously they're going to dominate it so in order to have any kind of genuine free market you'd have to break them all up into small pieces wouldn't you no you wouldn't you the 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 reason these organizations grow so big there's, there's all sorts of reasons but two key reasons are that regulation suits them hmm. the more regulation there is the less barrier the more barriers there are to entry and so regulation tends to reinforce monopoly rather than leave it open to competition. Mm. So regulation actually suits all those, suits the large corporations. Um, there are all sorts of other reasons. And another key reason is our system of money, mm. which is a form of regulation itself. But, you know, once upon a time we used gold or silver or whale's teeth or whatever it is, and money was free. And whatever you and I decide to use as money, we decide between us. But because of government now is money is now money by government edict so we have to use government money and the only bodies that have the power to create this money are government central banks and large banks mm. most money is created when i when loans are made that's how money gets created so the system of money effectively reinforces the monopoly of the large so if i'm if i was to go what's the zero patient mm. you know how do we change it all the zero patient is money. Okay, so let me ask you a question. Okay. As an environmentalist, okay, so I'm most of my work has been primarily concerned with the mass destruction of nature by humans, right? Mm -hmm. This is what's happening at the moment climate change, mass extinction, we know all the horrible figures, um, the destruction of the rate of something like the Amazon forest, for example. Mm -hmm. Now, if it is very, very profitable indeed, which it is at the moment, mm -hmm. to level the forests of Southeast Asia, um, which are primary forests full of wildlife, and replace them with palm plantations because everyone in the West is building palm oil. And that's yes. what's happening. Yes, right? but the, but the palm word, oil, again... But the reason that, that there's right this now? obsession with palm oil mm. is that all these alternative forms of uh, energy are subsidised. Mm. You know, the, the whole palm oil market is, 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 a, is a failure of subsidy in the West. It's but we'd still be consuming something, right? Sure. So there's two billion middle-class consumers in the world, there's going to be 5 billion by the year 2030, and they're all going to want to consume things. So they're mm -hmm. going to want toilet paper made out of forests, and they're going to want the fish from the sea, and they're going to want, even if they don't have palm oil, they're going to be consuming things from vast factory farms, and it's always cheaper to run a vast factory farm than, say, a, a small free-range farm in terms of global distribution. Well, so yes do and do? no. How do yes you do that? Yes and no, because now, as we get richer, people are demanding you know, to know the provenance of the cow that they eat for their Sunday lunch and all this kind of thing. So there's a return to the small. Some that is slowly are. happening. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure they are in China. No, they're not, That's but they're not as rich as we are yet and they're not as sophisticated as we are. Um, the, uh, the person you need to have this argument mm. with is Matt Ridley. Oh, my God. Right. <laughs> not Matt Ridley. Okay, no. but uh, that's the person you need to have. The, well, you see, here's, here's, here's what I would say yeah. about this, is that, again, I think, it, I think it's about scale again, because at a small scale, I agree with you, free markets are good if they can't get too big and dominant. But a corporation like a government, as soon as it outgrows 
a size where it can be affected by people who can actually see what it's doing, becomes a tyrant, which is yes. what's happened. My narrative is that the greatest rape of the environment is is waste. Uh, if we were all more efficient, there would be far less uh, waste. Mm. And the biggest perpetrator of waste is government and large corporations and unintended consequences of failed regulation. If people are left to their own devices, we're far more efficient. Mm, I don't know. People are not very good at uh, food waste. I mean, how much how much food are we throwing but away? Huge half amount. of the food that we eat, yeah. or rather half the food that is produced in the West, is thrown away. Mm. And most of it is thrown away because it can't be given away because of stupid regulation. Mm. Well, food, food waste in the West is a direct failure of regulation. What I'd like to do, you see, is... Uh, I mean, you know about... Chesterton's distributism, I would guess. Go on. Probably know a little me. bit about that. Well, you've got your little map there of yeah. breaking up Britain into into smaller chunks yeah. so they can be more self-governing. Um, now, Chesterton's notion, Chesterton and Hilaire Belloc, they come along at the beginning of the 20, 20th century. They're both these couple of big roly-poly, Catholic, slightly radical, but also conservative thinkers. And they're trying to steer a middle ground between capitalism, which they don't like because they think that business is too big and it's destroying all the things we've just been talking about, but also the state, particularly communism and socialism, which at the time very big, and all the intellectuals are very much into communism and socialism as the alternative to capitalism. And Chesterton and Belloc see them as uh, two cheeks of the same arse, although that's not their quote, it's mine. <laughs> um, it, but it's a good one. But you know, <laughs> what, they, they, what they say is, look, these are two gigantist systems which are unaccountable. So Chesterton creates this economic and political theory called distributism, in which everybody... This will interest you because you're talking about breaking up of land. You get all the land in Britain and you divide it between all the people in Britain. Everyone gets a chunk of land. An acre right? Maybe. Whatever whatever there is, it'll probably be more than that. Uh, and, I think there's 65 million people and 65 yeah. million acres. Well, that's perfect then, isn't it? That's, you can live on that. And so effectively what he's doing is breaking down the whole place into tiny chunks of land. Uh, and the notion is that at that point, everybody becomes a co-owner. And then, they, then they're free, right? So you haven't got, you haven't got the system in which... You haven't got the winner-takes-all system of global capitalism in which you say, well, the big guys have got there because they earned it so they can do what they like. But neither have you got the top-down state socialist system in which you say, well, the government has taken all the land into its into its power for your own benefit. You say, well, you break everything up and you give it to everybody equally. And then you see what happens. And under those circumstances, you could have a genuinely free market because the corporations would be small and the trade would be local and people would have some power based on land. And then it gets interesting. I'm not saying it would work or be possible. Yeah, but as it is in principle, it's much more attractive to me than either of the big systems. Good book by a chap called Sam Bowman, who's a, a left-wing economist, um, called Secrets of the One Percent. I think mm. it's called a sort or something like that. And he looks at the richest people through history, mm. from the kind of robber barons of America, Carnegie and and um, Vanderbilt and all these guys, through to Crassus mm. in ancient Rome. And all these guys, and, and Bill Gates today, all these guys became superlatively rich by eliminating the, com- the competition mm. and making sure that government regulation reinforced their monopolies and eliminated the competition. Mm. And anyway, let, let's move on. But the, 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 I think that my premise that a free market and anarchism are one and the same thing, you don't agree with, which is fair enough. Well, like I say, I would if maybe if it was a genuine free market and it was on a local scale. But okay. But I also always come back to um, what happens to the unprotected things and the unprotected people. You know, who protects the people who will just not be able to afford to live under a free market system? Who protects? Uh, we'll all be the forests. We'll all be richer. Uh, well, that's very utopian of you. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but is it good to be richer? There's another question. Well, we'll be richer in mind, body and soul. Well, that would, that sounds like a utopia. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I hope it happens. <laughs> I can't. Not at the moment. <laughs> looking forward to your plan for it. Not unless, not unless Dornick Frisbee takes hold of the system of right. tax, uh, the tax uh, of HMRC. Right. Right. Let's talk about um, uh, your book. Mm. Now, well, actually, before we talk about your book, I want to talk about your your old your your an article you read in the Gu- you wrote in the Guardian, and this is what uh, one of my pet hates is the unequal distribution of land, mm. um, and this is a global problem. But let's talk about it specifically to the UK. The the unequal distribution of land in the UK, and it, this ridiculous numbers, and you cite the same guy I do, Kevin Cahill, who's the big expert on this. You know, more than 70% of land in the UK is owned by fewer than 6,000 people. Mm. And like we said earlier, there's enough for an acre each. And this is a monopoly that goes all the way back to William the Conqueror. 
So I wonder if you can, and you wrote about this, of, of, of this kind of the corruption of land ownership following the, the Norman Conquest. So I wonder if you talk a little bit about that mm. and how Anglo-Saxon England was kind of much more distributed, a mosaic of land ownership. Well, this is describe. interesting. You know, this is one of the things I discovered when I was researching The Wake, this book set in the um, aftermath of the Norman Conquest, um, is that a lot of, actually, much of the feudal system but also much of the unequal land ownership that we've got now stems from the 1066 invasion. So what happens in 1066 is that William, the Duke of Normandy, decides he thinks he has a claim to the throne of England, um, and he tries to persuade other Norman dukes to come with him, and most of them refuse to come with him. They say, we're not invading England, it's ludicrous, you can't possibly win, it's big, you're a tiny little dukedom, you know, give it a rest, we're not doing it. The only way he can get a proper invading army together is by promising them spoils if they win. He, he says to them, look, it's basically a pirate army. So he basically says, look, it's a long shot, lads. You know, but if you win, we've got the whole country and you can just have bloody great bits of it. You know, I'll give you, I'll give you enormous amounts of land. We're going we're gonna to tear it up between ourselves. And that's how he manages to get um, a, an army of people drawn from across Europe. I mean, from Normandy, but also from Brittany, people from Italy, other parts of France, joining him in on this pi pirate raid. You have to remember that the Normans are actually Vikings. The word Norman is a, is a distortion of Northmen, and it's only a few generations since William's ancestor has settled in Normandy. Having, so raiding has always been their way. They've still got a Viking raiding mentality, so they go over there, go over to England, and they it, it's effectively the last Viking invasion of England, what happens in 1066, and it's successful. And in Anglo-Saxon England, um, what you have is a society which certainly isn't equal. Um, it's still uh, it's still feudal in some ways. You know, you still have a king, and you have and and you have um, you have earls and they have, have very large land ownings, but there's nobody who owns everything. Um, the, the earls own land underneath them, then the, 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 um, the thanes at local level, the, 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 the local landlords own land, and the peasants own some land as well, depending on whereabouts in the country they are. Um, there's also slavery at the bottom of the system, so it's not any kind of utopia, but it's, it's better distributed. Um, on a side matter, by the way, women in Anglo-Saxon England have far more rights than they end up with for the next thousand years under the Normans. The notion that a, uh, a wife is a, is a man's property, which was only abolished in, in Victorian times, is, an, is a Norman notion. The, because under the Normans, women become property as well as land. So anyway, long story short, uh, obviously William wins. And the first law he puts in place in 1067, after he's crowned, is a law that says, henceforth, all of the land in England is owned by the crown. So everybody else who has land from now on only has it on sufferance from the king or the queen. And that's still the case now. It's still the case now. If you own this house, I don't know if you do, but if you do... I don't, unfortunately. You don't, well, the, you wouldn't Out anyway. principle. You wouldn't anyway. Because I refuse to pay these extortionate this why, prices. This is why they're called tenancies, even if you buy them, because you're a tenant of the queen, mm. a tenant of the king. And in theory, although it's unlikely to happen, they could reclaim their land if you were a disloyal subject. So what William does is he says... Everything in this kingdom now belongs to me, and I can distribute it as I will. And what happens over the next 10 years is that virtually every English landowner at high levels is dispossessed and replaced by Normans and Bretons and cronies of the king who helped him to invade. Um, and a lot of those people are still there. I don't know if you saw this great interview with the, I think it was the Duke of Westminster. He died a few um, months back, I yeah. think. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, last August. Yeah, yeah and um, there was an, uh, uh, he, he was interviewed by um, some business magazine or business paper a few years back by some keen young business journalist, and they, they interviewed him and they said, uh, tell, me, t tell me, sir, um, what advice would you give to an aspiring young entrepreneur who wanted to emulate your success? And the Duke of Westminster said, well, I would advise them to have an ancestor who was friends with William the Conqueror. <laughs> he obviously had a sense of humour. But I like that because that's, you know, right. that's why he had the land, and that's why a lot of the land is still stitched up even now. Ancestors of this, it is a fact that if you have Norman descendancy in Britain, then you are more likely to be wealthy in land or financially than if you don't. And that's that is actually it's not the it's not the full story, but it's the root of this intensely, um, this intensely concentrated land ownership in this country, which is the root of all sorts of other problems. We've got oh my goodness me. Right, really interesting. Now, tell us about the wild men, the Silvatici. Mm, well, this is um, this is what the book turned out to be about. Um, I was in a bookshop in Oxford years ago, and I came across this history book called The English Resistance by a historian called Peter Rex, which is a great book. And it's about the guerrilla campaign 
of um, resistance to the Norman conquest, which I'd never heard of. You don't learn about it in school. But it's the equivalent of the French resistance in World War II or the Viet Cong in Vietnam mm. or even what's going on in, in Iraq at the moment um, or was against the American invasion. You have very large numbers of people taking to the woods, taking to the fields and fighting a guerrilla war against the Normans because they're being dispossessed. You know, they're, 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 there's, there's murder, there's slaughter, there's... there's burning, there's land theft, there's a huge campaign of resistance for years trying to hold off the Normans um, and it took the Normans quite a long time to, to pin down the north of England um, they, they got the south east under control fairly quickly but the north and, and the west down in Cornwall took them much longer um, because of this resistance campaign um, so yes, they, they, were, they were known by the Normans as the Silvatikai, and they or the men of the woods, and the English called themselves the Green Men mm. And they were there for a long time, a long time. Um, and they became Robin was, Hood. Well, it's or, it's part know, of the same tradition. It, it's part of the same tradition, which I think probably starts in 1066. That the rebels are always in the forest. You know, in English history, mm. you've got this, you've got this, this giant, powerful crown, and those who rebel against the crown always end up being outlawed, end up in the forest. But they're also they, then they become heroes of the people. You know, then they become these. Um, these outlaw heroes. There's a reason that the green woods are full of outlaw heroes in in English mythology. It's because they're they're ordin- often ordinary people who've been dispossessed and thrown out and demonised, but they're but they're fighting back. So it's it's a, it's a it's a, just a fascinating period in history yeah. that you don't really learn about much. Right, and I, I'm I, I, it's and you've written it in a kind of made up old English. The whole book is written uh, perplexingly in in this version of old English. Um, yeah, because I realised I couldn't write. I started writing the book in conventional English, and it didn't work. And that because it wasn't the language they would have spoken, and it just felt false. It felt like I was giving them modern technologies or making them drink cappuccinos. So I ended up creating a halfway house language that's somewhere between this English we speak now and the English, the, the proto English they would have spoken then. Uh, at which point I thought it was impossible that anyone was ever going to publish the book, but I just finished it anyway because I was enjoying it. Very good. And uh, lo and behold, nominated for a uh, long list for the book. Yeah, you never know what's going to happen. Now, let's talk about... We're going to talk about your essays in a moment. Your most recent book is Beast. That's mm. your most recent novel. So let's talk. tell us about Beast. Well, so I wrote The Wake, and The Wake is set a thousand years ago. And when I'd finished writing it, I conceived this, um, the curious notion that maybe it could be part of a trilogy um, that was set... Um, a loosely connected trilogy that was set across 2,000 years of time in England. So the first book set a 1,000 years ago, the second one would be set now, and the third one would be set in a 1,000 years' time, and they'd be linked by the themes of exploring the notion of place and belonging to place and what that means and what identity is, all the different people moving through this place, how the place changes over a long period of time. Um, And I didn't really know what form that would take, but it was an interesting enough idea to want to do it. So the second book in the trilogy is called Beast, and it's set now on a moor in the West Country. Um, the central character is a descendant of the central character from the first book. From the okay. Way, although he doesn't know that, but you do as the as the reader. And again, it turns out to be about one of the big themes that The Wake is about, which is about the, the sentience of landscape, the, the power of places, and the, uh, what happens when a place begins to control you. You don't. You're not just a. You're not just an actor walking through some scenery. Mm. You're actually someone having a strange relationship with, with uh, myth. And what also happens when myth and story and history come bubbling up from the past and kind of wrap their tendrils around your legs. So great. I I don't know. This is just my me deluding myself. But I do feel English. Mm. You know, when I walk in the English country, it's not particularly on the Thames. When mm. I'm on the Thames on the river, I feel that it, I'm part of this. And I don't get that feeling elsewhere. Why don't yeah. I get that feeling in Cornwall as well? Well, it's about. I think it's about landscape. It's funny. I always get that. I always get a strong sense of um, belonging somewhere when I'm on the Thames as well, because like I kind of grew up near the Thames. Mm. I think that um, you know, I if people have identities, which most people do, um, they're they're built up of a relationship between a person and the place they're in. If you grow up in a particular place and you have a relationship with that place, then it helps to form you. Um, and that's um, that's just that's the fundamental part of being human mm. um, and we kind of we're, we're, we've lost more touch with it in living in a giant mega consumer society which in which is which is turning every place into every other place effectively. oh god 
Don't, don't let's get started on architecture. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I this is what I, you know. I had this book, called Real England, which came out about ten years ago, and that yeah. was, that's exactly what that was about. It was an exploration of how this globalization process, this corporate beast, was was homogenizing the whole country. And I, I wrote it about England because that's where I come from, but it's happening everywhere else in mm. the world too. Every town looks the same as every other town. Yeah. All the pubs disappear, all the local farms disappear, and there are people all over the country fighting to stop it happening. But it's like this steamrolling, homogenous yeah. juggernaut just rolling out this. this the zero patients are money and tax. Hmm. I'm sure about that. And one day, and bear my witness, I'm going to write a kind of Tolkien-esque novel. <laughs> uh, it's going to be Tolkien meets something else. But the, the and you know, allegorical and all mm. the rest of it. But the, the uh, Tolkien meets George Orwell. Uh, meets um, Animal Farm. Okay, but the but the the zero patient. The the, right. the thing he has to do is is fix tax and fix money. <laughs> right. Okay, else, and then oh. he solves everything else. Good luck making that into a gripping plot. <laughs> <laughs> if you do, that'll be a great success. Um, right, your book that you're out now, and mm. this is this is the one we want to sell. <laughs> New uh, Confessions of a Recovering Environmentalist, and this is a compilation of some of your essays, mm. which I'm, I'm now turning to the camera and looking down the lens, are brilliant. This is how I kind of started badgering Paul because I saw the article he wrote in the Guardian about land ownership, and then I went on his website, um, and then I started reading the essays that are on his website, and I was like, oh, this 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 bloke's great. I've got to meet him, and that's how me emailing him and saying drop me a line next time you're in London that's how today this interview happened but the essays are great and so tell us about do, do you want to, which one do you want to talk about well thank you for the uh, thank you for the plug it's very nice of you to say so are um, they the same essays on your website that, you're, that you've kind of re-edited into a yes, book yes some of them and there are some other ones too um, I mean this is it's, it's a series of essays I've written really over the last seven years um, uh, really about all the subjects we've been talking about but also as the title suggests um, they're about coming to terms with the fact that the environmental movement I was involved in, I didn't think was working and it wasn't possible to do the things that we were trying to do. So, you know, as a young idealistic green campaigner, I thought that if we put enough effort in, uh, we could stop the climate from changing and we could turn around the direction of the the destructive industrial juggernaut. Uh, and I actually came to the conclusion that we can't do that. I don't think it's possible. I don't think people want us to. I think that all the forces from growing population to people's desire for consumer goods to the power of corporations to the power of states is all taking us inevitably towards a direction where we're going to destroy more and more of the natural world until the whole thing falls apart as it has done so many times before in human history so that led me to a kind of despairing place for a year or two when I was going oh god what do we do now and I had to write my way out of that mm -hmm. I had to um, I had to get to a point where I thought, well, what can I still do if I believe that? What, how do I act? How do I write? What still makes sense? What kind of environmentalism is is still a good kind? Is still a, is, is still a kind that that's worth that's worth trying? So really, that's that's where the book begins, and a lot of the essays in the book are, are, are start from that point, and then explore from there what's where we are, what can we still do, what's still useful, and also what's uh, from from my point of view, when when you give up on big ideas and grand plans. Um, what kind of small things can you do instead? Because a lot of what's happened to me over the last 10 years has been a, a withdrawal from this notion that it's a good idea or even a legitimate idea to have a great big plan for the entire world that everybody ought to be following. Even if that were culturally possible, it's not going to work. No one's going to take it on. If that's the case, at what level can you still effectively do things? Which to me has come down to quite a quite a small personal level what I can do in my on the land that I have and what I can do in my personal life and what I can do with my writing. Um, yeah, so it's actually you, you take the notion that small is beautiful away from almost from the political arena and take it down to the personal arena as well and try and do something actually useful and maybe beautiful with your life. So you live, why did you choose to live in the west of Ireland, apart from the fact that it's a beautiful place? It is a beautiful place, and, and I have some friends there who were encouraging me to come over and, and, and see if it were a good place to live. But, I mean, it's part of a process that me and my family have gone through where we wanted to... My wife used to be a psychiatrist. She wanted to leave that, um, partly because it was a, a sort of <sighs> an impossible thing to do given the, the, the difficulties of working in mental health and in a, in a giant institution, which is what the NHS has mm -hmm. become. Um she wanted to leave. We wanted to homeschool our children. Um, we wanted you to have them? some. 
My wife does most of it. I do some of it. Yeah, mm-hmm. she's she's How sort old of. They? They're six and nine. Um, so I'm she's going to hand you a copy of Life After State when you leave this. Okay, program. I can't wait. There's a whole chapter. Look forward to think. Oh, great. Okay. Well, we do homeschool precisely because again, it's about uh, it's about that notion of of doing things locally, doing things mm. in a small way, teaching your children what you think they should know, and letting them have a lot more time running around in the natural world rather than stuck in a giant building in a in a town. Um, so we homeschool the kids, and we grow our own food, and we have a couple of acres of land. And we don't have a mortgage, which was one reason to move to Ireland, because it was affordable there. And, you know, we were just talking about land ownership, and that's one of the reasons it's almost impossible to buy an affordable house or a piece of land. Can't tell you how many people I know in Britain who would love to have an acre of land oh, and I'd live simply on it house and, and build, build their own little house, which ought to be a very cheap and simple thing to do. Yeah. Um, and if that were possible... Um, there would be a huge army of so people. much better for the economy because be. there would be less debt and mm. there would be more money in people's pockets and it would and be so better they would not no longer be slave to pay their mortgages mm. and and you'd get your uh, environmental yeah it would also be better it would also be better for the rural economy which is yeah. virtually dead i mean if you want to rejuvenate the countryside make it easier for people to afford to buy a little bit of land build a, a genuinely ecological house on it and then work on it and sell the produce, you know, which is all, again, all of this is so hard to do. It's so bureaucratic and so expensive now. There's just, it's an exodus. People are being stuck in houses and jobs so how, they Did hate. you build your own house? Or did we it? didn't build our own house. No, that's the bit we haven't done. I've built a, built a tree house for my kids. So you've got to start somewhere. Great. But um, no, it's, it's really just wanting to get back to a, a simple and more controllable um, way of life where... You're closer to nature, you're growing as much of your own food as you can, and you have some sort of measure of control again. That's how it feels anyway. And it's also kind of a, it's also running away. It's also an escape from giant cities. And How many hours a day do you write? And it depends on the day, actually. I mean, on a good day, I'll write all morning and then spend the afternoon doing other things, whether it's emails or planting potatoes. Um, but it depends. It depends, actually. At the moment, I'm writing a book which is coming a lot more spontaneously than a lot of my books are and I'm finding I can't really plan it and I'm finding also that I'm writing it at night so sometimes I'll sit up for three hours and just write and other days I won't do anything Okay. I've learnt not to force it actually that's one of the things I've learnt over the years that you can't or I can't set yourself four hours a day where you have to be writing some days you just can't do anything and other days it'll all come pouring out and you just have to let you don't go. beat yourself up on a well, no you can't because you, you can't make it come if it doesn't want to come mm. you know it's like trying to make a seed grow it will either grow or it won't you can't force it out of the ground <laughs> um, Paul thank you so much for coming over it's been a real pleasure talking to you meeting you and literally I mean we had some pretty heavy conversations and given we'd only known each yeah. other for five minutes it's, it's, good, it's, it? it's, it's, it's uh, healthy I enjoyed it that's one of the beauties of podcasting and, and recording interviews is mm. it kind of uh, heightens the conversation mm. yeah it's great well thanks for asking me it's been good um, why don't you look down the lens and the lens is here oh, hello, and, lens. and plug uh, tell us how we can buy um, confessions of a recovery okay oh, I hate selling my work but uh, yes I've got an essay collection it's called Confessions of a Recovering Environmentalist it's published by Faber it's being sold in all good bookshops and all over on the internet as usual um, and I would encourage you to buy it in an independent local bookshop if you possibly can and what is your website? Uh, it's paulkingsnorth.net and there's plenty more about it on there Paul Kingsnorth, thank you very much thank you